Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast. Each week, your host, Casey Haston, Director of Recruiting at VIP, will bring you valuable insights from thought leaders, introduce you to incredible companies, and bring you tips for landing your dream job from our team of executive recruiters at VIP. And now, Casey Haston. Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast, a podcast devoted to adding value to your career or candidate search. I'm your host, Casey Haston, Executive Recruiter, Director of Recruiting with VIP, and all-around hiring guru. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome Glenn Smith, Chief Audit Executive at Cormark International. Glenn has an incredibly impressive resume, having been Director uh, or Senior Director at Blockbuster, Vice President of Internal Audit um, at Sabre and director at MCI WorldCom. Correct me if I get any of this wrong. <laughs> You're doing good. And, and at WorldCom, this is where he aided in uncovering multi-billion dollar fraud and assisted the company in successfully moving forward and emerging from bankruptcy. Thanks for driving all this way and coming to be with us today, Absolutely. Glenn. It's good to be here. So do you know how I found out about you having a key role in the WorldCom fraud? Tell me. Okay. So this is back when we first met, and I was prepping a candidate mm. to come interview with mm. you. And it was a new grad, so I, I don't want to be belittle anyone to say this kid, but this kid, he calls me and he goes, do you know who I'm interviewing with? <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're interviewing with Glenn Smith. He's like, no, this is the guy that discovered all the WorldCom fraud. He's like, textbooks are written about him. He goes, no, I'm nervous. And I'm like, don't be nervous. And I was nervous. Because we had just started working <laughs> together. I was like, how did I get in front of this guy, you know? Yeah, and now any kid you talk to says WorldCom. What is WorldCom? I know. <laughs> I know. I've been talking about this for, you know, weeks. And so, and everybody's like, mm, I'm like, Enron? They're like, yeah, I'm like, WorldCom, them too. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, interesting. So, as I mentioned, you played an instrumental role in discovering the fraud with mm. WorldCom, right? And, um, you know, at the time that WorldCom was the world's second largest telecom company, is that right? Yes. Okay. Second. Can you tell us a little bit about what your role was? Yeah, in sure. That? Yeah, so Casey, we were doing um, a just a routine capital expenditures audit. And, um, you know, in the planning phase of any audit, part of what you're doing is you're getting um, financials or management reporting that's going to aid you in sort of mm -hmm. scoping what that audit's going to be. Okay. So one of the things we had requested and asked for was a list of all capital expenditures for our audit period. Um, and just as we typically would do, we, we want to tie those reports to the financial statements to make sure that we're getting the complete picture. So when we started going down that road to tie these statements to uh, the financial statements, there was a gap in the, between the total and, the, and these financial statements. It's a pretty sizable gap. Mm -hmm. um, so we started asking questions about, hey, what's the difference in these? And at that time, these were very routine. It's, you know, any, any other audit, you would ask the same kind of questions. Um, so it's very routine to be asking this, and, you know, we fully expected there to be an answer that was sufficient and made sense to us, and we moved on down the road. Um, but we, we didn't get an answer that we were satisfied with. And, in fact, um, as we talked to multiple people, um, this terminology called prepaid capacity kept coming out. I've never and heard of that. This. Well, I hadn't either. And oh, wow. So okay, we, so. we had the same reaction, right? So we were like, 
prepaid capacity. I've never heard of that. Um, and so when we started asking people, well, what is prepaid capacity? Um, on several occasions, they would say, you'll have to ask our controller. You'll have to ask our controller. Okay. Which at that point, you know, you, you start to sort of, you, you, you kind of start off with normalcy here, and then you're, you're a couple of red flags, and it kind of starts to rise. And so we thought, okay, well, that's bizarre that you're throwing out terminology that you really don't know how to define here. And so uh, we continued down that path. Uh, again, at this point, we weren't thinking, oh, my gosh, this is a fraud, right? right. We're just we're, we're chasing the, the trail. Um, and, and trying to figure out what this is. And so um, as we came to find out, as we started pursuing this, um, prepaid capacity was a WorldCom made-up term um, that, that essentially meant rather than taking these normal period costs that would go in an income statement, they would bundle all of those costs, they would book journal entries to move those to the balance sheet under the terminology prepaid capacity. And they would then capitalize those and then amortize those over years and years and years, which made your income statement look a lot, lot better in the short term. So that's how we initially got on to something's wrong here um, and started asking questions and just continued down that path. So uh, my role in that, I was part of a team. I was part of uh, probably five people on the, the team for capital expenditures. I was the in-charge auditor. Um, but certainly everybody on that team played a role in going in and digging out. We did a lot of computer analytics to try to dig out where are these journal entries, and so um, I was just a part of that team. It, it got to the point where we realized this is a bigger issue than, than it, it should be and something's going on here. Um, and at that point, we really sort of pressed pause on the audit um, and Cynthia Cooper, who's, who's VP of Internal Audit WorldCom uh, at the time, uh, she and I really sort of at that point um, started to take the ball forward and, and really strategize on what do we need to do next? How do we move forward with this? Um, and so, so really from that point, uh, I was there uh, with Cynthia and, 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 you know, strategizing about where we take it and what do we do, and there was a lot of that going on. Um, I think we made some calls right and some we probably missed on. So did she testify, was it before Congress? Is that who you testified for Sarbanes-Oxley? She did, yes. And yes. you did as well, right? No, I did not. Oh, I, I thought I did, did not. No, she okay. she testified before, um, or let me back up. She was called to testify before Congress. Um, and you, know, you probably remember, you've seen the photos mm -hmm. of Bernie Ebers and Scott Sullivan hands raised being sworn in to that congressional hearing. Um, Cynthia was there in Washington ready to go if they called her. They ended up not calling her um, to, 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 to testify. Now, she later obviously testified in the case in court, but for the congressional hearing, um, she was prepped and ready but never called. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, and that was kind of a big deal. So, I mean, how many, was it, it was billions what, right? The the fraud was uh, 3.2 billion. Gosh, I've slept a lot since then. I think that's right. 3.2 billion. That's a lot. It was sorry, maybe 3.8, but it was at the time it was the largest corporate fraud in U.S. history. So yeah, it was a big number. Um, what was interesting is after we had gone through the process of uh, identifying it, taking it to the audit committee, um, and then you know management was subsequently terminated. Um, after that, and it became public, um, you know, people 
within the ranks started coming out of the woodwork and saying, "Hey, you know, we we've got this uh, we've got this sort of bucket over here for a rainy day where we've booked this allowance and may not be completely uh, accurate, so you may want to take a look at this." And so we got a lot of that as we started going through the restatement process, and all told, the restatement ended up getting up to eleven billion. Oh so, so you start with this $3 billion fraud, which yeah. was huge in and of itself, but by the time we got to the restatement, it was $11 billion that we restated. So um, it was, it was uh, yeah, it's quite significant. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So I know that when your team first discovered the fraud, you worked into the night to look into the company's financials mm-hmm. without authorization. Mm-hmm. So was there ever a moment you considered lessening your involvement as a whistleblower? Did you ever fear retaliation? No, we we really didn't. Um, and one of the things I think we got right um, was that from very early on, uh, we let the chairman of the audit committee, as well as our external auditors, know where we were with mm-hmm. this. Um, I say early on. Once we got to a point where we suspected this could potentially be something that, um, you know, that that we've done incorrectly as an organization, uh, we we pulled in chairman of the audit committee, as well as the external auditors. And so um, the number of people who were aware that we were looking into this was broad enough that we never felt like, hey, we're, we're sort of out here on an island. We're the only ones that know. Right. Uh, had that been the case, I would say yes. I would have been looking over my shoulder, headed to the parking lot after work. But um, the fact that, that multiple people knew um, at this point that we were looking into this um, you know, I, I really never, you know, feared for my safety or anything like that. I mean, plus, look at me. I mean, I'm a very physically imposing <laughs> guy, you know, so I have to handle myself. <laughs> Maybe we should explain that for the people that are just going to be listening. That's sarcasm. <laughs> right. That's funny. Um, so what was the thought process after, you, you know, you were told not to dig in anymore, mm-hmm. just let it go, that some of these methods were approved, um, you know, by the external auditors. What was your thought process at that point that led your team to continue digging despite that direction and not halt the investigation? Yeah, I mean, we weren't comfortable with it. And I think that, uh, you know, and I'll give you a great example. So uh, there was one day that we got to work. Cynthia called me in her office and said, Hey, I've got this voice message from Scott, Scott Solomon, who was the CFO. And she played the voice message for me. It was Scott basically saying, hey, Cynthia, I want, uh, I want to get an update from you on what your team's doing, where you guys are in your audits, which was very unusual. That, that's not something that Scott did. He's very busy. Um, you know, he didn't just sort of carve out a, a period of time for Cynthia to come talk about status of her audits. Um, and by this time, we had we were well into asking questions, and so we, we suspected that this was all sort of a setup to get a beat on where we were with this. And so um, Cynthia went, she started going down the list of her audits. Uh, when it got time for the CapEx audit, she called me up there. So I went up there and joined Cynthia and Scott, and uh, we're going through kind of where we are in this, and we bring up prepaid capacity. And so... Cynthia uh, just says, Scott, what is prepaid capacity? And he begins to explain, um, you know, the business rationale for doing what I said earlier. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we had purchased a lot of uh, what called last leg, um, you know, lines to get data from a point 
um, to a home or to a business, right? So those are all owned by third parties, and we would purchase the lease on those, and those leases were typically two, three years. I thought you were saying they were on their last legs. So. Oh, no, no, probably that too, but uh, <laughs> that makes but more no. sense so, now that you've explained so it. So we purchased a lot of that, and remember, this is during the dot-com mm-hmm. you know, boom, and, and uh, we purchased all that anticipating that all of that capacity would, would be grabbed. I mean, it would be gone by the time we had bought it. Um, and so when the dot-com bubble burst, um, those were what's called dark fiber. So there was no traffic on those. And so all of a sudden, now we were locked into these three-year leases where we're having to pay monthly on those, but we've got no revenue to offset those. And so as Scott explained it, so really what he was saying is that's really capacity we've prepaid for that we anticipate at some time we'll have traffic for. So it's really an asset of ours that we're going to go capitalize on the balance sheet. So fantastic business case. And if you explain that to somebody off the street, they would say, okay, that makes sense. I was convinced. But Gap says you can't do that, right? And so um, Cynthia and I left that and both just sort of looked at each other and say, did we, did we hear what we thought we just heard? So uh, I, I would say to answer your question, you know, very important that while you listen to others and you ask for an explanation and you listen to the one they give, at the end of the day, you have to sit back and say, does that make sense? Is mm-hmm. that, are we willing to accept that and just move on? And the answer for us was no, that doesn't make sense to us. And so, um, you, you keep pushing, you keep asking, um, until you get to a, either a point of comfort or to you ultimately disclose something. Blow it up. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, after the scandal was revealed in 2002, you said, in the post-Enron, post-Anderson environment, internal audit really needs to function independently of either the CEO or the CFO, mm-hmm. which makes perfect sense mm-hmm. considering what you just said. But do you feel that this working relationship has changed since then? I think it's changed. Um, I do. I think there certainly is a better context um, for CEOs and CFOs now post-Enron, WorldCom, Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, they understand better what the purpose and function of internal audit is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think before it was, um, you know, internal audit in a lot of cases, not all cases, but internal audit in a lot of cases was a check-the-box function that we have to have, um, or it was a function of we've got policies and procedures, we want you telling us if those policies and procedures are working, but we want to control what you look at. Um, and, you know, when I made that comment, I felt it was very important to really pull away from that perspective mm-hmm. um, and, and make it such that internal audit truly was independent um, and that internal audit had the, uh, had, had the breadth uh, of scope to be able to look at what they felt they should look at from a risk perspective. Um, and so, as I said, I think that's changed. Um, I do think it is a very tight uh, rope to walk mm-hmm. um, because it's difficult. And it's difficult not only for the chief audit executive, it's difficult for the CFO and for the CEO um, because it's a relationship unlike any other that they have where there's somebody in the organization getting their paycheck from the organization um, and they have input but not ultimate charge over. That's the audit committee. And so that's a that's a that's a delicate situation, um, and I've seen it handled well, and I've seen it handled not well. 
um, and it's, uh, it's just one that has to be worked out. I know we've talked about this in the past, and you know I'm fascinated with fraud and how it gets discovered and stuff like that, but just real quick, Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, mm. wouldn't you say that's kind of what happened there, is that her auditors were being denied information? Yeah, I mean, Elizabeth Holmes, and I'm, I'm probably not as astute about that whole situation as you are, but just from the things that I've read and seen, uh, I would say the, the commonality there is that um, control was very, um, very tightly wrapped within a, a few people within mm-hmm. the organization. Uh, and any time you see that, any time uh, an organization is very tightly controlled by two or three or four individuals, um, you just completely open yourself up to um, really, really high fraud risk, as well as other types of risk. But, but yeah, that's a that's a, a dangerous situation to see for sure. Absolutely, it just fascinates me. Um, what are some of the lessons you've learned in your career, and things you'd like to share with those facing similar um, ethical dilemmas? Like, do I whistleblow or do I not? Yeah, you know, I think, um, and, and that's a question that um, you know I've heard other prominent whistleblowers asked and uh, there's one that comes to mind that uh, that that was asked that and she said no I wouldn't do it again just because of the toll that it took on her family on her career and I get that I would never stand in judgment of somebody that took that position Um, I I myself don't hold that position Um, uh, I I would I would do it again Um, I you know certainly think that while maybe not directly, I've seen um, sort of shadows of indirect um, fallout from mm-hmm. from being in that position, um, but certainly nothing to the level of say a Cynthia, Cynthia Cooper or a Sharon Watkins who was was really right out in front and the front person for being a whistleblower. Um, so you know, I, I would say you you really have to on a situation by situation basis step back. Um, and, you know, I, w- I would say you, you always do what's right in mm-hmm. an ethical dilemma situation. Um, you always do what, what's right. Um, but the way that you go about it can vary. And I think you have to look at um, all of the components of where you are, um, where you are as a provider for your family, where you are in the organization. Um, and every situation is unique and different. And so you, you have to take all those inputs in, carefully consider how am I going to go about this, um, and, and then move on and, and, uh, and go forward. Um, it's not an easy answer. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all yeah. for sure. Um, but the other thing that I would, I would say in terms of lessons learned for me is I was really able to see sort of the impact of what, what I call the slippery slope. Um, there's a great story I'll tell you that uh, I heard one time that I think is a great analogy for this, and it was a story about how Native Americans used to hunt, and um, and and so they would position themselves around a, a pond or lake or body of water where there are ducks, and they would take a gourd. You know what a gourd is? I do know what they a gourd know, is. You're from Alabama. No, I'm not. Louisiana. Louisiana. <laughs> that is a southern state. I'm Mississippi, so we know what gourds are. So yes. they would hollow out a gourd. And they would put the gourds, they would position themselves where the wind would blow the gourd in the path of the duck. And so initially, the ducks would see the gourds coming, it would frighten them, they would fly off. Well, they would continue this pattern several days until the ducks got callous to that. Uh And it was like, the gourds aren't going to do anything, they float right on through, they go about their business. So at that point, 
the Native Americans would take a long straw, they would stick it up through the gourd, and then they would put the gourd in the water, and underwater, they would follow the gourd out to the ducks breathing through the straw, and when they got under the ducks, they would take them by the legs, pull them under, and there's dinner. Oh. Right? So, I know, sad story for the ducks, <laughs> oh, yeah. but the point is, what happened to the ducks? They, something that initially raised a red flag to them, after a period of time, didn't. They got away with it mm-hmm. by staying there, and so they got comfortable. And I think in these situations, you know, nobody wakes up and says, I think I'm, I want to be a criminal. I think I want to commit a mass fraud. Right. It doesn't start there. It always starts with, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat a little bit on this expense report, or I'm going to book this journal entry or not book that in journal entry. It's not that significant. And then nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Cheating in school, same thing. Right. You know, no, nobody who cheats in college, they didn't start cheating in college. They started cheating probably way, way back. They got away with it. They learned how to be good at it. And so, um, you know, I would I would say that, um, and I've heard this quote in another context, but I think it's it's fantastic. It's that a, a an ethical situation does not um, it doesn't it doesn't really doesn't create character it exposes it oh and so uh i think that character is built one decision at a time going all the way back um and and so just being in the position that i was in and being able to see good people Mm -hmm. um that i think ended up um just in a position where they were just comfortable making decisions they shouldn't have been comfortable making um for me was a huge lesson learned i love that they got used to the gourd yeah they did that's a great analogy. I'm yeah. probably going to steal that from you. That's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> so the WorldCom scandal played a huge part in Sarbanes-Oxley getting passed. Um, do you feel like, and if I remember you correctly, it was unanimous after this, right? Yeah. It passed unanimously. Do you feel like this legislation is enough to protect us in the future? Uh, yeah, I guess the question would be from what? From this occurring again, I think it helps. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't think there is one across the board sort of magic bullet that says this is not going to ever happen again. I think we've seen examples of that. I mean, we've had frauds since this time, right? Um, I think Sarbanes actually did some good things. I think there needed to be probably um, a bit of a swing of the pendulum back in the other direction, and even though now I think most anybody can sit back and say, that's probably overkill. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive. It's very time-consuming. It takes a lot of effort. Um, And so there are some parts of Sarbanes, actually, I think everybody would agree um, we'd like to fix. But having said that, are we better off with Sarbanes-Oxley than we were after this? Absolutely. No question. Is there a time stamp on Sarbanes-Oxley when it'll be reviewed and modified, or it just is? It's there. Okay. It's there. It's it's uh, it's law now. So um, now, you know, can can it be uh, can it be adjusted? Absolutely. In fact, um, you know, one of the uh, – I saw several articles written when um, Trump was elected. You know, he's got a different view of compliance and mm-hmm. – um, uh, and, and so, you know, there was some, uh, there was some wondering whether or not he would try to repeal Sarbanes-Oxley and, uh, what that would mean for, uh, for that and, and several other, uh, bills that have sort of strengthened the controls around financial statement reporting. But, um, you know, we've not really seen any of that in his administration. Okay. So let's fast forward to the present. I know we've taken a trip down memory lane. Yeah. 
but I want you to talk a little bit about present day audit department and what you do. Because I know that, I mean, it sounds like, and I want everybody to know this, that it sounds like you're like, I'm going to get you. And I know mm-hmm. that's not your style. So how do you create that trust between internally in your department and externally with the other business units that you have to deal yeah, with? Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, I would say if anybody sees you as that, I'm going to get you. Mm-hmm. Um, you've you've really already lost and because, uh, and I've been in situations, I've come into situations where that's, that's really the perceived attitude of internal mm-hmm. audit. And whether or not it's reality doesn't really matter. If that's the perception, yep. um, then then you've got trust working against you. And to your point, um, the number one thing, in my opinion, an, an internal audit function has to do today to be successful is to gain the trust of management. That doesn't mean doing everything management says to do. It doesn't mean never disagreeing with management. It doesn't mean never standing up. Um, but you can do those things in a way um, that is not combative in all cases, in a way that's collaborative. And it takes, um, I, I think, um, an unappreciated skill set to really make that happen. Uh, and I've seen auditors that are really, really good at it, and I've seen other auditors that just really aren't. Um, but, but in all cases, you can see the results of that played out in their uh, eventual success or failure in their organization. I love it. What do you look for when you're adding additional talent to your team? I, I look for a few things. Um, one is, uh, in, and I always want them to be energetic and enthusiastic, so I look for passion. Mm-hmm. If they're not passionate about what they're going to do, and I don't care if it's just reviewing SOX controls or, you know, all the way to doing enterprise risk assessment. Whatever it is, I want them to have passion about the job. And so if if I can, in the course of multiple conversations, see they really want to be here, they really want to be doing what I'm going to be asking them to do, um, then I think they check that box. So passion, passion would be the first. Um, the second, I would say, are fantastic communication skills. And I think this leads into that trust conversation that Mm -hmm. you and I were talking about. Um, It's going to really be difficult to get trust of your customers, your internal customers, if if you can't communicate effectively with them. And so that is a must. I I can't have somebody on my team that's a detriment in terms of every time they send an email out, it's wrought with grammatical errors or it's, it's so direct and forceful that, again, you're, you're, it's that, oh, they're out to get me kind mm-hmm. of mentality. So um, I really have to have a good, effective communicator. And then, and then the last thing I would say is I want them to have a capacity to excel at the job. And I use that terminology because I'm not asking that they walk in the door and be able to do it. Mm-hmm. But if I can get a sense for their ability to pick up on things and do things well, um, then, then they're moldable, then they're teachable. I think about, in fact, um, uh, one person that I hired when I was uh, back at a firm called Saber, uh, Annie Ding. You, mm-hmm. you placed Annie. I did. Um, I love Annie. I tell her story all the time. And so Annie was one of those that we brought her in as a staff SOX auditor. Mm-hmm. And um, Annie was one of those that I recall just being able to see. 
I think she's got the capacity. You could teach her anything. Because she didn't have the skill set No, at all. she didn't have the skill set, but she had the capacity, and you could tell that, to, to really be able to come in and learn anything you teach her. And she was eager to go, and she was a, an effective communicator. So she was one of those. She came in. She was very successful. I think she's a manager now. She's not a manager. Audit. Yeah, so, the huge company. You um, gave her a great start by taking a chance on her. Well, you brought her to me, right? Yeah. So we're a good team there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so Annie's a great example of, of an employee that, that I look for. She, she checked all of those boxes. And I think if you've got those three things, you've, you've got something to work with and you can really, you can make an internal auditor out of them. You make a lot of things out of them, but they're going to be successful. I love that whenever you, uh, send me a role to work on, the first thing you say is go find me another Annie Ding. <laughs> so I hope she gets to listen to this because that's a huge If I had a compliment. staff of Annie Dings, right, I <laughs> could do anything. Oh, her head would just be exploding right Probably. now. Probably. So very quickly, I just want to I w- I make sure that we talk about Cormark a little bit. Um, and I looked at your LinkedIn, and you often share news and updates about Cormark. Yeah. I can see that you really love them. What, what do you love the most about them? You know, and I tell everybody I interview this, um, I tell them that anywhere you interview and everywhere I've ever interviewed is going to say to you, um, boy, if you'll come work for us, we we really are like a family. Mm -hmm. Everybody says that, right? Cormark is really, honestly, the first place I have ever worked where it actually feels that way. And, you know, Cormark's a big company. It's a Fortune 500 company. Fortune 300 company. We've got 32 distribution centers across the country and Canada. Uh, over 8,500 employees. We're a big company, but when you sit at headquarters or you're at a division, um, it has a small company feel to it. And so you've got the advantage of working for a really stable, well-positioned company in a good industry, um, yet at the same time, it feels like a small company. uh, We sit uh, on, on, on a floor and you know, uh, my CFO or the CEO will walk by and walk in and sit down and have a chat or walk through the break room where people are having lunch and sit and chat with them. And so uh, it's it's a very unique environment and company to work for, but um, very focused on core values. Um, again, another thing you hear companies talk about. But, right. Um, Scott McPherson, our CEO, has said, look, when we have discussions and we're thinking about um, strategic moves, be it an acquisition or bringing on a new customer or whatever, we'll ask the question, how does this align with our core values? And so to be a part of a company that really lives out its core values um, is, is it's, it's awesome. I love it. That's amazing. Yeah. Everybody, you should go work at Cormark. <laughs> When there's openings, which, right. which there's not very often, You right? bring them to me. I right. bring them to you, yeah. I'm, I'm the gateway, there gatekeeper. All right, are you ready for our VIP questions? I guess. Okay. If you, were one, if you were chosen to be one of the first colonists on Mars, what three things or people would you take with you? Wow, Mars. Sunscreen. <laughs> no, I won't say that. So I am going to go with the things rather than people, so okay. I won't offend anybody because I've only got three, right? Right. Um, so I would say um, I would take uh, my Bible. I read it every day. Um, so I, I would definitely take that. And then I would take my iPhone, right? Okay. iPhones get a bad rap, but I get news on my iPhone. I'm assuming they have cellular service on That's Mars. That's assuming a okay. lot. I, I get news on iPhone. You stay in touch with people. You get emails. So it does a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So I would I would take my iPhone. 
Um, and then I guess my glasses because I couldn't read my iPhone if I didn't oh, have them. Oh, you know, I didn't even think about that when yeah. I was thinking about my three things. Yeah. So, so if I forgot that one, I just I could throw would, my iPhone away. Oh, but you can blow it up. Yeah. But that's not fun because no. then you got to scroll back and forth all the time. Right. Those are good ones. I like those. There it is. So, what is one thing you do to start your day to set you up for success? Well, I think about, you know, the days that I, at the end of the day where I feel like I got a lot accomplished, I was in a good frame of mind, um, you know, it, it I, I do try to carve out every morning, um, right after I wake up, take a shower, um, 30 minutes to an hour to just sit down. And my routine is uh, I sit down, I do spend some time reading the Bible and prayer, meditation, but it's just, it's getting my head wrapped around the right priorities, right? And, mm-hmm. and really just kind of anchoring in on what what's important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it creates perspective for the rest of your day. It doesn't make things that shouldn't be that important that important. Um, you keep them in perspective. And I think when you do that, um, you're much more balanced. You're in a better frame of mind to react to those things and, um, and, and move on down the road. So I think that's yeah. very, very good. You know, most of the thought leaders that I talk to, there's some kind of meditation, Bible reading, a lot of journaling in yeah, the morning, yeah. putting their day in mm-hmm. order. You know, and listing out, I call them my big three. You know, my big yeah, three. Right. I list my top three things I have to get done that day. And then everything else can follow, right? Absolutely. So. That's Yeah. I wish I were a better journaler. I've I've tried to journal, but something about journaling is just hard for me. To... You, should, you should try a structured journal, like the full focus. Okay. I have mine here. I'll show you. All right. All right. Final question. Okay. If your life's work was being summarized in a news article, what would the headline be? I think the headline would be, he left it better than he found it. I like that. So, you know, for relationships, for um, work, um, for whatever, you know, I I, I would like to think by the time, um, you know, I'm removed from that job or or for whatever reason, you know, the relationship or whatever that um, it's it's better then than it was when I found it. So I think if that were the headline, I'd feel pretty good about it. That's pretty awesome. Thank you so much for being absolutely, here today. Absolutely, absolutely. How do people find you? How do they find your company? So we're uh, you know we've got a web presence. So CoreMark.com uh, is the company. No dash. Uh, I thought that was that's a, a great question, I and maybe think there, there may is. Be a dash. If you Google CoreMark, though, okay. the first thing up will be our website. So okay. Google CoreMark. Uh, go there. You can find out tons of information about CoreMark, our history, um, career opportunities, uh, and then look me up on LinkedIn. I'm happy to link in with uh, with anybody and, and connect. It's all and, about connections, right? And it's G-L-Y-N. It is. G-L-Y-N Smith. Yeah. You might want to do Glenn Smith and CoreMark to find him. Also, you have a pretty big presence on Twitter, don't you? Um, I don't know about that. Okay. You just look at it? Yeah, I look at it. I'm a consumer of Twitter. Gotcha. gotcha. (laughs) More involved on LinkedIn. Okay. All right. Well, I just have one more thing to say to you, Glenn. Okay. You are a VIP. Awesome. And that's a wrap for today. Join us next week here on the We Are VIP podcast. We'd love to know how we can help you be a VIP. To find out more, log on to wearevip.com.